You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 22 of the Prehistories Podcast with me, Kim Bidolf. Now, having got 21 episodes under my belt, I'm just starting to relax after like two years of doing this. I really like to hear from you. If you think that our views on the books that we discuss here, me and my guests, are a load of rubbish and you want to tell us otherwise, then get in contact with me. Let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Kim Bidulph. That's B-I-D-D-U-L-P-H. I know it's a little bit of a difficult one, but I'm sure you can cope. Or just at arc podnet um so that you tell us tell us if i'm right if we're right or wrong if you think that the book is better than we think if you think that the um that it's not so good or if we missed a particular topic or missed the point of the book entirely i really like to hear more from you guys So let's get straight to introducing my guests. My first guest is uh, Dr. Helen Chittick, um, a postdoctoral researcher on the European Celtic Art in Context Project at the Institute of Archaeology at the University of Oxford. Hello, Helen. Hi. Hi. Thank you very much for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. It's going to be so good to talk to you about this. We've had a little bit of a pre-chat, haven't we? So um, yeah. there's quite a lot to get into with this with this book, and it's um, yes. So I'm very very happy to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, Let me introduce my second guest. <laughs> thank you, Helen. Let me introduce my second guest. It's Dr. Julia Farley, the curator of the British and European Iron Age collections at the British Museum, and a recent well co-curator of the recent Celts exhibition at the British Museum that moved on then didn't it to um scotland to edinburgh um hi julia hello thank you so much for joining us and i know you've had a bit of a trek getting home tonight haven't you (laughs) to record this with us i think london is still recovering from the snow yeah (laughs) hopefully it'll all be melted in a couple of days and we won't know you know we'll think what what was all that fuss about there was never even that much (laughs) it's just one of those yeah, it's just down here in the south. We don't know how to deal with it. Um, yes. So um, I wanted, uh, first of all, I would like you to kind of tell us a little bit about your work. Helen, What what is the European Celtic Art in Context project all about? Well, this is a, it's a project. Um, it's hosted at the Institute of Archaeology in Oxford. Um, it's led by Professor Chris Gosden um, and it's funded by the Leverhulme Trust. Um, and it's a project that's been running for almost three years now. Um, mm. I've been working on it for nearly a year. Um, and I've been working on it with my two colleagues, uh, Peter Hommel and Courtney Namura, um, who are both fantastic people to work with. Um, and the sort of aims of the project are to uh, characterise Celtic art um, across the whole of Europe. So from uh, Ireland in the west all the way over to sort of Bulgaria in the East, and to then um, sort of link the phenomenon of Celtic art to um, art from much further East, um, across sort of the Eurasian steppes. So we're looking at sort of a big scale, um, big scale connections between um, very distant communities. Oh, that's interesting. I came across some um, burials that from uh, Western China that seemed to be they were mummified and uh, but naturally yeah. they yeah. seemed to be um, a very Western looking, very 
for want of a better word, Caucasian, uh, with blonde, there was a woman with blonde plaits and she had a painted face. I, don't, I can't remember wh- where it was now, but it was and perfectly preserved. And they were described as Celts in Western China. Goodness, um, I haven't heard of those ones. I'm sure I'm going to have to find that link now and find out where it was. I yeah, wish I could remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my, my colleague, uh, Dr. Hommel, has been working on all the, the Eastern material. Um, mm. But if any listeners um, want to know more about um, some of the material from the East that we've been looking at during our project, um, visit the Scythians exhibition at the British Museum, which is currently on until sometime mm. in January. Um, it's fantastic. And it does have a lot of um, sort of the, the material, the comparative material that we're looking at in the East. Yeah, I, I haven't got a, uh, along to that yet. I really must go because I've been seeing loads of reviews of, and, and comments from people going and saying how amazing it is. Were you involved with the Scythians exhibition, Julia? No, I wasn't. That was curated by Sinjin Simpson and he works in our Department of the Middle East, interestingly. Ah, ah interesting. Huh. Um, but you were involved in the Celts exhibition, yes. and um, which was a big, big exhibition a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Um, I actually worked in that exhibition oh. um, with school groups. I was uh, for the for the education department in the British doing? Museum. It was absolutely. Oh, it was just one of the highlights of my life to work in and to to work in and to to be able to talk to kids about the Gunderstrup Cauldron. I mean, it was just the most amazing. Oh. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, particularly that object, the cauldron. I had never seen it in the flesh until we unwrapped it at the um, when it was being installed in the exhibition, and it was literally being unwrapped because it was wrapped in this kind of um, clear. I mean, it looked almost like a like a cling film, um, like sort of polythene film. And as we were slowly kind of unwrapping it round the cauldron, and these faces were emerging, was absolutely phenomenal. Those iconic faces. So this cauldron is uh, from Denmark. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where it was dug up. Um, it might not originally have come from there, though. Is that right? No, so from the style of the sort of silver work, um, we, and from some of the objects and things which are depicted, we think um, it's, it's a curious object, it's a bit of a one-off, um, but it looks more like kind of Thracian silver work, which would be down um, in kind of southeastern Europe. And so there's mm. this uh, idea that maybe it's kind of been made down in the Balkans, um, but perhaps reflecting and, and depicting objects which are being used further west. And then somehow it's ended up in Denmark. So it's obviously got a fabulous story, but being as it was found sort of dismantled in a bog, we have to try and piece it together as best we can. And it was found in the 19th century, wasn't it, as well? So it's um, yes. difficult because there's la- a lack of context there for us. Absolutely. I mean, we're really lucky that it survives, I think, actually. It was found by um, uh, workmen who were um, digging peat in the bog. <sighs> yeah. Um, and the Celts exhibition, it was it was really interesting um, look at the Celts, wasn't it? Mm. This this um, over a very a long period of time and over a wide area. Like um, like Helen has just been saying. Yeah, the um, exhibition spanned from 500 BC to um, the present, really. Because the word Celt is very, um, it's very evocative and everybody seems to know what it means. And yet, <laughs> <laughs> and yet what, what does it mean? I mean, uh, when you think about it, as you say, it, you can use it from 500 BC to the present and there are people who describe them, themselves as as celtic today very proudly mm-hmm. um and rightly so and um 
Uh, yes. But, you know, there are, I, for, let me just admit that I have wanted to, I have tried not to use the word Celt to talk about pre-Roman Iron Age people mm-hmm. in Britain yeah. for, for my entire career. Yeah. But it's really hard because we don't <laughs> have their own name. So I think, first, I'm really pleased that you phrased the question like that, like, what does the word Celts mean? Like, what do we mean when mm-hmm. we talk about the Celts rather than who are the Celts? because the former question is much easier to answer and neither is completely straightforward. Um, But when Mm. we talk about the Celts, really, generally, people are referring to one of two um, not completely disconnected, but distinct groups. And Mm -hmm. one uh, is the um, ancient peoples who lived, particularly in continental Europe, from around 500 BC until, you know, sort of the time of kind of contact with, with Rome when obviously kind of cultures and connections are changing. Um, so in the first centuries, BC and AD. And those are people that um, writers like Caesar um, talk about as being called the Celts and calling themselves Celts. Mm. And, and it's very difficult. We have, you know, the, the Roman perspective of that. Um, we don't know exactly how that word was used and the extent to which it was used by um, the, the people that are being kind of given, being ascribed that name. But I think certainly in, in continental Europe, um, almost certainly particularly in what's today France, there clearly are groups of people who are on some level referring to themselves using the words like, you know, Celtai or we've received it, I'm sure, slightly garbled through kind of Greek and Roman authors, that those groups exist mm. and that name is being used. That name is never used in ancient times, so in that kind of first millennium BC, to refer to people from Britain and Ireland. Fast forward now, (laughs) Um, because the word then kind of falls out of use completely in the sort of post-Roman period. Nobody's calling themselves Celts. Nobody's using the word Celts. It's it's sleeping. Um, And um, from the kind of 1500s, but particularly from the early 1700s, people... um, of what today are the Celtic nations um, of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, um, Cornwall and Brittany and the Isle of Man, um, they are looking for a word, for a name, to describe their languages and their identity Mm. as distinct, and it is distinct, they are distinct, um, from the English and from the French. And they seize upon, first in language, and then that word gets transferred later to other aspects of culture and heritage, um, the word Celtic, and they are borrowing that really largely from Caesar and some of these kind of um, you know classical works that are rediscovered during the Renaissance and spread with the invention of the printing press. And so, from um, I mean, the first mention of Celts in Britain is in the 1500s. George Buchanan, who's a, um, a Scottish historian, writes about it, um, and uh, and he's talking then about kind of like waves of migration and things. Um, but it's used to apply to the languages in 1707. Um, and then after that starts to refer to lots of other things. So then comes this kind of second use, which people are often using when they say the Celts, um, which is this idea that it's the peoples um, of the modern Celtic nations. And both of those uses mm. are completely sensible and completely valid, but they are not the same. Um, and I think the confusion has arisen um, because the same word is being used for two things that they're not completely disconnected. You know, people have been, you know, living and making art in Western Europe for all of that time in between. And that word can get tangled up with lots of those things as well. Um, But they are distinct. Mm. Thank you. And Helen, um, the, so does, does your um, project look at 
the Thracian area. And what, what's the what's the modern country that Thrace is now um, would be now part of, as it were? So we are not um, really looking at the Thracians, um, not partic- not because we don't think um, that they uh, sort of Thracian art. Um, had influence on art further west, um, but uh, solely because of time constraints. So mm. that's the short answer to that question. I'm afraid. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, that's fine. And obviously, and Denmark was Denmark ever part of Celtic Europe? Well, um, that's another tricky one, really. Um, so our database, um, we, we've been working on. Um, collecting together um, a huge amount of data on, um, on different Iron Age objects from Europe. Um, and our yeah. database that we've compiled, um, I think, does have two objects from Denmark in. Um, one of them is probably the Gunderstrup Cauldron. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what it is um, off the top of my head. Um, but, but Denmark, it's not usually included in um, the sort of the Celtic heartland, if you want to call it that. Um, so I guess if you were thinking of um, sort of connections within Europe um, in the middle to late Iron Age, um, you know, there, maybe there's a little bit of um, sort of interaction yeah. with the more of the sort of central area of Europe. Yeah, I find it interesting because um, all of the recreations of uh, people from Iron Age, when you see drawings of them done by modern um uh, artists are wearing clothes that have been found in Denmark <laughs> because that's where we find the clothes basically for that period um and we and and because, yeah so it's it, it's interesting it's so it's, it just blurs all of these this kind of what is celticness um is is a really difficult ha- thing to get a handle on isn't it um so I was going to say, I think we use Celtic to refer to so many different things, like not just yeah. about two distinct time periods, but like, so the project that Helen's working on is looking at Celtic art. Um, and so by that, we mean this distinctive kind of swirly, abstracted, curvy um, form of, um, you know, early European art. Um, and we call that Celtic, again, borrowing the name from, you know, Caesar and, and whatnot. Um, but then that's a different again to, you know, saying peoples who might have believed that they had the, the same kind of ancestry or something like when you're actually thinking about back in the past. So obviously mm. the people up in Denmark um, had some idea and concept. If you look at something like the Gunderstrup Cauldron of objects like torques, you know, big metal neck rings and carnises, war mm. horns and things that were being um, used maybe further west in what we would think of the Celtic world, but they're connected to that. But they're not making that kind of swirly, abstract style of, of art. So um, we always like to think that there's going to be one nice, neat name that is going to sum up like a language and a people <laughs> and a culture, because that's how our modern kind of nation states work. But back in the past, yeah. they didn't have that and they probably wouldn't have understood that concept. No, it's so much more complicated than you, you can, we can possibly think, really, which I think um, is where storytelling can come in a little bit, actually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, before I mean, we'll get on to that. The the book that we're we're going to look at um, today is called Warrior Scarlet, and it was written by Rosemary Sutcliffe in 1958, or published in 1958. And Rosemary Sutcliffe is a ah, just such a fantastic children's author. 
from um, the 50s, 60s, 70s as well, um, winning various awards for her writing, um, better known for writing about the uh, disappearance of the Ninth Legion um, with Eagle of the Ninth. But she did write a couple of prehistoric novels, set novels as well, and this is one of them. Now, it's set in about 900 BC. Oh, that's what she says. Mm-hmm. It's really mm, more about maybe eight, seven hundred. <laughs> uh, that's just my little nickel. Um, <laughs> and so, it, 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 is that this is why I wanted to talk about Celticness? It, it, does that kind of Celtic art go back that far? No, no, it doesn't. So, Celtic art um, sort of first starts appearing in Europe um, about five hundred BC. Um, mm-hmm. And sort of the earliest examples of this, this type of art are sort of found um, to the north of the Alps in that kind of region. Um, mm. And then they appear in different parts of Europe at slightly different times. So in Britain, um, the, the earliest examples of um, the objects we call Celtic art will probably be about 400 or 350 BC. So it's mm. so it's quite a bit later than, um, than the period of time that that uh, book covers. But I think that she's drawing on a lot of those ideas about Celticness, isn't she, in the book? Anyway, we'll talk about that after the break. <laughs> um, I just Before we go to the break, I just wanted to say the oldest thing I seem to remember in that um, I talked about, because I, I got really into this object, Julia, in the Celts exhibition, was the flesh hook. Yes. From Donovan <laughs> Which is about a thousand BC, is that right? Or is it yeah. earlier than that? I'm... Um, yeah, no, that's around about right. So it's towards the end yeah. of the Bronze Age. That's much more at this kind of um, time that is being depicted in the book. So it's on the, the cusp. So that's so fabulous because it's got these five little birds on it. Um, three birds that look like a little kind of family of swans um, or water birds yeah. um, and two little yeah. kind of ravens or crows facing each other um, on the handle of this, um, this flesh hook. And um, th- this is some of the really early kind of figurative art from the, the Metal yeah. Ages um, because we're just on that cusp where we're moving from much more kind of geometric designs um, and kind of like sort of circles and, um, you know, um, line-based geometric shapes and decoration towards kind of figurative, abstracted kind of animals. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful object. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, everyone. Now... Uh, we're going to take a quick break to, uh, so you can listen to these messages and we'll be back in a moment to get m- much deeper into this book, Warrior Scarlet. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Welcome back. Now, we haven't really talked a huge amount about the book yet, which is unusual for my <laughs> podcast, um, but I wanted to, I, I really love the question of Celticness, so I, I wanted to talk about that. Um, 
and I think it's good background. So Warrior Scarlet is really um, a children's book, as many of Rosemary Sutcliffe's books are, but it's um, one of those really rich um, stories that you can read and enjoy as an adult too. The thing about Rosemary Sutcliffe is that uh, people of a certain age, like myself, um, <laughs> kind of grew up on her books. Although I say that, I read I only read one of her books when I was young, and it was Robin Hood, because I absolutely love Robin Hood. And I think her, her version of it is my absolute favourite. Um, what about you guys? Did you grow up with Rosemary Sutcliffe? Yeah, sorry, we're both waiting for each other to speak, aren't we? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I certainly grew up uh, reading um, Eagle of the Ninth and um, uh, The Silver Branch as well, I think. Um, And yes, several of her other books. Um, I'm not 100% sure if I read Warrior Scarlet as a kid. I thought I had, but on rereading it, I'm not not sure. Ah, what about you, Helen? And Well, me, um, I... don't think I've actually ever read a Rosemary Sutcliffe book before now. So this ah. is my first reading of Sutcliffe and I absolutely loved it. Oh, good. Yes, it's she. I just love her storytelling. I think she's a reason why I got into historical fiction. And I think there should be more children's historical fiction writers mm-hmm. out there. Um, it's just, it's wonderful. Um, I mean, obviously I, I wax lyrical about a lot of authors, but Rosemary Sutcliffe has got quite a um, special place in my heart. But I hadn't read this when I was a child. So I, I would be nice to start with what we like about the book and then maybe we can pick it apart a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so Helen, you said you loved it. What was it about about the book that you really... I mean, let, let me give a pricey. I mean, basically yeah. it's set, as I say, she says it's set in about 900 BC, but it's set when uh, in the late Bronze Age, but... Um, a trader brings an iron knife um, to the village. So it's really at the beginning of that um, that switched iron. Um, and it's set on the South Downs in southern England, probably in Sussex, because that's where Rosemary Sutcliffe lived. So she knew the landscape really well. Um, and it's about a boy called Drem. Um, who was born or or maybe had some kind of illness as a child that left hit one of his arms useless. So he only has one arm and he has to go through all of the rites of passage that a boy of his um, time and place had to go through in Rosemary Sutcliffe's world, obviously. Um, uh, but he has to do it with one arm that that doesn't work for him. And it's all about his the trials and tribulations of his, of him growing up. So you follow this 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 boy's um, journey, which obviously draws you in a lot. So, Helen, what was it about the the book that you liked? Okay, so so firstly, I think reading it as an archaeologist, um, mm. I really enjoyed um, sort of looking at the little details she put in um, and going, oh yes, that's what she's referring <laughs> to. Um, I, I think she. There's an incredible attention, uh, attention to detail in her her writing in terms of making sure, um, on the whole, that she um, sort of sticks to what were at the time sort of accepted archaeological theories. Um, mm. But aside from sort of the archaeological aspect of it, um, I thought her descriptions of sort of the natural world were really um, really evocative and beautiful, and um, and the way that the language works in the book is lovely as well. Um, so there's just a few simple 
Um, obviously, the, the characters in the book speak English, um, but there's a few little words that they change. So, for example, yes um, is sa. And it's just those little touches that make the, the people in the story just seem a bit more distant from us. Um, and I think it works really well. Yes, yeah, the power of language, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Julia, did you enjoy the book? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I always enjoy Rosemary Sutcliffe. I think for me, it's the the richness and the texture of the world that she creates. So um, just, you know, the the touch and the taste and the, the smell of it, you know, she evokes that really beautifully um, because that's what we we miss in, you know, the archaeological record. We um, have so few kind of like organic remains preserved. Like you were saying about um, we often borrow um, clothes from kind of Bronze Age Denmark to clothe the rest of Europe for prehistory because we have them <laughs> preserved in these fabulous kind of um, oak log coffin burials. Um, and, but, you know, but she um, draws in so much of this kind of like, you know, rich organic world and the food they're eating and what it's like to see the, the way a shaft of light falls across the doorway of a roundhouse, like all these things, she really kind of brings them out. Um, and I think she's quite good as well at uh, the sort of um, sensitivity to the sort of inner lives of the, the children um, often that she's writing about um, and sort of what matters to them. And I think that really just kind of draws you in and, and brings the book together. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that she wrote from this from Drem's point of view, from a boy's point of view. And apparently that was just a thing that all writers, children's writers did at the time was to write from a boy's point of view. Oh. I would, yeah, I know. I did some <laughs> research uh, last year, I think, on um, kind of the history of children's books. Um, and uh, there is this, uh, there was a, a kind of a, um, uh, a message being told to everyone and to to writers and to schools and things like that in the 50s and 60s that boys were not reading boys don't read to write books with boys as the protagonist uh, to get boys reading because uh, girls will read them anyway um and and i i just i thought to myself my god we're still saying that even today <laughs> you know, a lot of people are saying boys are not reading they need adventure stories write more books for boys and there's so many books for boys out there. It's ridiculous. There's so few with girls as the protagonist, um, and especially as, as I've been researching into books about prehistory. I would have loved to read the book from the perspective of, um, I mean, there is no main female character, um, but one of the only named female characters um, is a girl called Bly, um, who is Drem's yeah. kind of... Um, uh, oh yeah, there's this girl, and like, oh, I don't really care about her very much. Like, oh, I can't see what role she could possibly play in this story. Um, uh, not to give any spoilers away. Don't, don't, yeah, don't spoil um, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not obvious. Yeah, but her life is really interesting, and I would have, you know, uh, I would it would be a completely different book, but I would love to read uh, a story told from her perspective. Mm. Yeah, it would be it would yeah. be really great to hear more about the in general about the female lives that are just touched upon in the book but not quite elaborated on. Yeah, I mean, I was going to save the role of women for later on as a quite a big subject, but as it's come up, we may as well talk about it now and because this is also something that I found um, in a couple of books 
about how women are complete. I mean, there is this tension. There is a tension between showing women in particular roles for children so that they learn. So, so particularly female children, young girls learn that they can do what they want and they're not um, tied to a particular um, role in life. Uh, which is clearly something that a lot of people want to do. But then when you write about history or prehistory in this case, um, and life was difficult for women, um, then how how are you meant to show that they uh, had a great life and yet also um, were uh, somehow locked into a particular gender role? Um, But were they? Were they locked into a gender role as well? How do we know that? (laughs) That's, that's really, Sorry, that's quite that's, a lot of questions there. <laughs> that's really difficult, um, I think, to answer. Um, but all I was going to say is that there is, I think we can look a bit more at the archaeological evidence that inspires stories like this. Um, because there is evidence out there for um, for women that have slightly different roles in society, um, women that were powerful. Um, in the sort of the burial evidence um, from Iron Age Britain, for example, has just a few examples of um, female burials um, buried with very powerful objects. Um, and that just shows that, um, you know, these were women, you know, important women in society and that uh, it wasn't necessarily all uh, sort of hard work for the women. Yeah, the Wet Wang princess um, springs to mind. Yes, yeah, that, uh, was, that was one of the ones I was sort of referring to there. Yeah, I'll put a link to her in the show notes. Um, she was buried with a uh, chariot inlaid with um, coral. Um, and there was a, a replica of it in the Celts exhibition, wasn't there, Julia? Yeah, there was a replica of the chariot. Um, and um, there's another female burial from up in um, Wet Wang as well. And we had one another female chariot burial, I believe. And um, mm. we had one of the objects from that, um, the, the beam can, um, which is, uh, um, it was a, it's a strange object. Um, it's not really a bean can, um, but it looks um, about the kind of uh, size and shape of like a sort of tin of baked beans. Um, but it is decorated with this beautiful swirling Celtic art. It will certainly be in uh, Helen's database. And um, uh, one of the ideas about it is that it's a kind of um, uh, like a, an instrument um, that might have had um, something like, you know, dried beans or something in it that you could shake and make a kind of rattling sound um, or that it might have been some kind of, you know, potent um, powerful kind of magic object. Um, it's it's weird because it's completely sealed. So whatever it was inside it, it's not like a box that she could open. It's something that she sort mm. of, um, you know, is, is just completely sealed. Um, and, and yeah, there are, you know, plenty of, of evidence that, um, women certainly could and did um, hold positions of, of power in the Iron Age and perhaps quite interesting positions in their society. Um, and I think, though, much though I wish this wasn't true, often kind of grave goods and things like uh, weapons, that you know, they are, um, you know, gendered. They're buried with mm. biologically male individuals. Um, and you could argue, like looking at the, the book, um, that actually it's it's a powerful story about this bloke called Drem, um, and he's got you know he, he makes choices in his life and he does things and does this and that. But he is absolutely bound to this. He has to become a warrior, and if he doesn't become a warrior yeah. by managing to slay his wolf, then he do- he doesn't really have a place in his society because that is the role for men in his society, and you know it's to all mm. kinds of um, of upheavals. Um, for him and difficulties, obviously, because he's got the problem with his arm. 
Um, So I think there's nothing to say that you can't tell an interesting story about someone just because they have a gender role. Um, Mm. And I think it's about the choices that you make and the battles that you fight within that world. You know, we all live in a world that constrains us in particular ways, and that would have been true in prehistory just as much as now. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, There's... uh, good point but it does it, the, the role of women in in the book does seem very very slight yes um i mean drem's mother who we finally find out what she's called don't we i think it's saba or something we don't know that from right from the beginning yeah I, I, <laughs> i'm trying to remember i think she's only mentioned a few times <laughs> yes and she's mainly um weaving that's basically all she does she doesn't leave the house none of the women seem to leave their houses yeah no i think it it, it's it's very problematic in the book and i I do think um if if it was possible for such a thing to happen that a woman from the um late bronze age um or like early iron age reading this would probably think hmm yeah there's something missing here (laughs) but you know i think as well i have a certain um you know, I, I want to see another book written from a woman's perspective, but I think Rosemary Sutcliffe has written this book as if it's from the perspective of a young boy. And mm. so, you know, what what does a young boy care about the lives of adult women in some ways? Like, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate because yeah. representation yeah. of women in um, literature and in stories is hugely important. And that's where like role models come from and things. And, and I want to see that other book about the women. And it's rubbish that yeah. that didn't get written. But... Um, it's written from a very particular perspective. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Sorry, go on, Helen. I was going to say, maybe that's kind of an invitation for, for a current author to, to write a book from the perspective of yeah. life. And maybe she goes off and, you know, has her own story. Yes, that would be good. The Yeah, I think um, you're right that it's... It, it's he's he's kind of almost as trapped by his own gender role, Julia, as um as his mother is and as Bly is, um and when he doesn't oh no I don't want to give any spoilers he has problems fulfilling <laughs> this role, um uh, then yeah it's it's kind of, it's so devastating for him and he there are socially social conventions about how he treats the women, even his mother, um and how he has to be a, a swaggering. Uh, warrior and all that stuff. So it's it's it, it must have been very difficult for him too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on. I mean, one of the rites of passage that he has to go through is to hunt this wolf. Um, now, Julia, I remember. I think it was maybe the third room or fourth room along in the Celtic exhibition, and obviously from from reading elsewhere. Um, that there's a suggestion that young. Uh, uh, quote marks Celtic men might have had a rite of passage of going and hunting on a hunting expedition. Is this just? Am I remembering rightly? Um, I don't know. We certainly would have said that things like um, hunting might have been important. Um, I don't think we know enough to know like what things might have been a kind of rite of passage or anything like that. I don't think it's um, mm. sort of a ridiculous suggestion at all. But I think we just don't have that sort of information. But weren't there little um, boar figurines that were yes. said to? Uh, I remember that the one of the one of the interpretations is that um, young men might have gone out and hunted a boar. 
to prove themselves or whatever. That is certainly possible. Um, the boar is really <laughs> important in uh, Celtic art. There's quite a small pantheon of animals that they actually kind of represent. So um, like mm. on the flesh hook, we have birds. Um, but we also, uh, if we look at other things, we see boars, we see dogs. Um, and beyond that, there's sometimes horses. Horses appear on coins and things, but it's mm. limited. And I think that that does suggest that boars must have played quite an important role. Um, and whether that's something that's, um, people have um, boar tusk uh, jewellery sometimes, um, like those hideous um, bracelets in Outlander. Um, <laughs> niche reference there for anyone who remembers that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so obviously they are kind of like hunting and bringing down these animals and it would have been something absolutely impressive to do because they are huge and they can kill you. Yeah, they must have been much bigger than they get now um, and a much more healthier population, I guess, as well. Mm. Um, there is a lot of focus on hunting in the book when they're 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 supposed to be farmers <laughs> and not very there's not a lot a lot of uh focus on the farming it's mentioned every now and again but i guess it's just not very interesting oh i love the farmers so like i want to live with the half people who farm the sheep like you keep the sheep yeah. because their lives just sound like way more chill yeah they sound like the sort of the more reasonable bunch to be honest i'd say <laughs> Yeah, well, I think if uh, on that point, I'm going to call a break um, so you can listen to these messages, dear listeners. And then when we come back, let's talk about these half people. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. Hello, welcome back. So one of the things that we haven't touched on until right at the end of the last section was these half people, or they're called the little dark people, um, in, a, in a very strange position that they hold in this society. Um, who who wants to describe that? Julia, you quite liked their lives. What did you? Yeah, well, I think I just, um, I quite like sheep. Uh, I'm a big like spinner and knitter and stuff. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, cool, I can hang out with sheep all day. Um, uh, yeah, so this um, is a kind of a, a separate group of people. So basically almost like a lower caste of people um, yeah. who uh, live um, in, instead of living in this kind of village where um, uh, Drem grows up. Um, and with his people, um, they live out with the sheep and farm sheep. But they're kind of part of the same society, but not allowed to be kind of warriors um, because mm. of, um, of of who they are and their kind of ancestry. Um, and the idea, um, uh, if we're going to talk about the, the kind of bigger stuff um, and the sort of archaeological things it's based on, um, I think it's the idea of this kind of mul- Britain being peopled by multiple sequential invasions um, which was quite popular yes. in the 1950s. 
um, when Rosemary Sutcliffe was writing, this is the idea she's she's borrowed. Um, and the idea is that these people's ancestors were one of these earlier waves of immigrants, um, and Drem's people are like the latest arrivals, these golden-haired um, sort of Celtic people um, who've, uh, yeah. who've rocked up later um, and taken over. Yeah, I mean, writing just post-war, it, it just felt very uncomfortable to me yes. reading what she was writing about the two different groups of people and what the golden people said about the little dark people. Oh, God, horrible. Yeah, it is this horrible kind of like racist, like weird, like double system. Um, it's And there's, I'd like to just take a moment to say that there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that anything remotely like that existed um, in Bronze Age or Iron Age Britain. Yeah, I mean... It does seem strange that there would be some people who would do the agrarian agriculture and some people who would just be the shepherds, and they're supposed to have different religions. Of um, course, uh, so let me just read you a bit because Drem um, spends a bit of time with them, and um, he worries about the fact that he's going to lose his religion. He says, many of the half-people bowed themselves to the Sun Lord, but he was going not only to the half-people, but to Doli, to the little dark people. Oh, right. So there's kind of two different groups. The the half-people and the little dark people are, are kind of separate. I didn't even the children of Tarlu. Yeah. And he knew that little by little, he would lose his own faith that was sharp and fierce and bright as a spear blade, turn from the Sun Father and the open sky to the older face of Doli and his kind, to the warm, suffocating darkness and the Earth Mother who gave all things birth. And that's another theory that was kicking around in the 50s. Well, no, earlier, I guess, as well, that kind of whole mother goddess. Mm, yeah. I mean, really, in the late Bronze Age, what can we say anything about what they were worshipping? My feeling would be no, not specifically to the level of deities um there is some um things that seem to be kind of like you know referencing um uh, the solar kind of world so um things like um there's these things that we call cult chariots that are like little uh, bronze models mm. that were buried in graves um and there are a couple that seem to show like kind of horses pulling a kind of sun um symbol along and um there is so there's various things that show kind of an interest in the sky but that's pretty generic um and people um seem to quite often bury things or make offerings in wet places so water and the kind of watery world seems to be important cosmologically and in their religion but i i wouldn't think that we could go any further to say you know what god or gods they were worshipping or whether they had the concept of deities in that way no they um, I mean, obviously, there's there's um, the links to the sun go back a lot further as well. If you go back to the Neolithic and various monuments having links to um, the midwinter sunset, in particular, <clears throat> in Britain at least, um, I'm not entirely sure about on the continent whether that happened. Um, so the 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 kind of difference between. Um, religions to seem constructed it's interesting though um, this is one of the things i love about the storytelling is that rosemary sutcliffe had to invent this world and of course people would believe things so she would have to um invent what she could 
but it's, it's it's in the 1940s, isn't it? Just before when Christopher Hawkes um, has his ladder of inference, <laughs> that religion is one of the things that you really cannot get anywhere near, according to him. Um, uh, but that's why I love fiction so much, because we can explore what that might be. Yeah. And I loved a lot of the little throwaway things. They're obviously just completely random and completely fictional, but like... Um you know, Portrix hadn't been out hunting with the boys because earlier he had stepped in the shadow of Midia and so he had been taboo until sunset. And then that's just yeah. like never mentioned again. And and stuff like that where I'm like, that's completely crazy, but those small kind of little um, quirky kind of beliefs and taboos um, that would be very hard to explain to a modern person, they totally would have had those. So I really, I like that she's put that level of detail in it, even though, I mean, we can't know what the specifics were, but there would have been things like that. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it's a a tour de force, the way that um, she reconstructs the landscape. And Helen, you mentioned that you liked the way that she talked about the landscape. Yeah, well, she's got this beautiful sort of, um, sort of evocative way of describing um, the way that people are moving through the landscape and, um, there's some lovely sort of passages where Drem is um, moving from his house um, sort of through the marshes, up the ridgeway, along the ridgeway, down into the forest. Um, and I thought it gave it, it gave the book a really nice um, sort of feeling of how, how the, the village where Drem lives was sort of situated within the landscape and, yeah. and gave a nice feeling of the sort of activities that would be going on on a sort of daily basis. So, for example, at one point, um, it's springtime and uh, Drem's walking along um, near some woods and it's um, it's the time for harvesting wild garlic. So he's smelling um, yeah. that garlic that's being harvested. And I, I thought she um, really paid attention to those um, little seasonal activities that were so important um, to communities during the Bronze Nine Ages. Yes, I remember that because there was all, all the... Um lots of links about colour as well, about the white of the garlic yeah. flowers. Um and the white of the did it was it when he when he killed that swan as well? Yeah. Oh, it was amazing. Um but uh, yeah, he went down to the so they all live on on the chalk up on the hills and near the ridgeway. And um then but they sometimes go down, as you say, into into the uh, terrible um uh, valleys, and it particularly says this about the the marshes. That I just wanted to read: No one lived in the marshes that lay inland of the chalk, for at night mists rose from them, and evil spirits prowled abroad in the mists to give men the sickness that filled their bones with shivering fire. And even at high noon in summertime, there was always a dank smell of things wet and rotting, for the cleansing wash of the tides that came up and went down again twice in every day over the sea marshes could not reach so far through the chalk. And it's so evocative about recreating that landscape. I, I sometimes I walk um, through the fields around here or other places, and it's so difficult to imagine what life would be like before they were fields, before they were carved up. Um, but is why what I want to point out is that. Again, this is a product of the 50s, isn't it? The fact that people were thought to live up on the chalk because it was nice light soil for for ploughing with an ard. And and you didn't go down into the valleys where it was all thick soil and marshy and horrible. But a more modern excavation has kind of turned this on its head, really. I think 
particularly later as well. So as we're moving into the Iron Age, when people um, can be um, ploughing those heavier soils more easily. Um, but yeah, and certainly, I mean, if you look out in the kind of um, the kind of marshy areas, we absolutely know that people were exploiting those and were working in them. And um, I mean, it's in a different part of the country to where this is set. But if we look at like excavations at places like Flag Fen um, and uh, yeah, all of the must new farm. must farm things that are coming up, like you know, of course, yeah. people are um, you know are working and living and exploiting those landscapes. And so- Runnymede Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, touching on um, must farm mates speaking as well one of the things that jumped out to me is kind of sort of like oddly incongruous is they're all like almost naked all the time and just like wearing loincloths um, even though they spend <laughs> so long spinning and weaving the women are doing nothing but spinning and weaving but the men only ever seem to be wearing loincloths it's very strange yeah it's a good point actually I hadn't thought of that <laughs> Um, yes, there is a lot of nakedness, and in England as well. I mean, yes, cool. Really? And, yeah, and we know like, the reason that must farm made me think of it is, that, of course, um, we so rarely organic preservation. So you know, we're kind of left guessing about textiles. But they found there um, they're doing a lot of work with flax, which of course grows down in that kind of wet, marshy landscape um, out in the fen, mm. um, and they part and lime bast. Actually, quite a lot of the of the uh, fabric there was from the, was was the bast of the of the lime tree oh, cool. as well, and that. Um, and also up at Whitehorse Hill Kissed mm. at, on Dartmoor, there was some nettle fiber. Yeah. So, um, yeah, some, uh, actually it's only because we don't find it, but it's not preserved very well in dry soil. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. And um, you can see how finely spun it was and things when we do get textiles. So, um, yeah. 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 There's some uh, beautiful examples from, um, from Hallstatt in Austria. Um, yes. kind of beautiful, um, well, I guess you describe them as played or, or maybe almost like tartan patterns. Um, yeah. Showing these amazing, um, amazingly fine weaves that were really kind of sophisticated. So, um, beautiful. I went to. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. I mean, I went to Hellstadt in the summer because it's been a place that I've wanted to go for, for just about 20 years, probably longer. Yeah. And it's, yeah, the, the stuff that's uh, that is preserved in, because it's a salt mine that's another way that a lot of organic stuff can get preserved and it's absolutely amazing um and yet, as you say i find this a very strange thing i read another book a children's book that was a bit like this um and i can't remember oh what was it called now uh anyway it was terrible and um <laughs> it was they basically had they had metal workers in a hillfall mm. making amazing jewelry mm. and I, I kid you not, he, the, the author described everyone as wearing basically sacks. Yeah. But why would they have beautiful jewellery made of gold with coral inlay <laughs> and whatever and wear sacks? Yeah. It, it, what, my favourite. I, I get very upset about clothes when they're, when they're wrong. It's one of my – because I, I dress up myself, so I like to, I'm trying to work out exactly what people were wearing and to try to show how sophisticated it was. Anyway. That's a bee in my bonnet. Yeah, I had an inquiry from somebody um, who, who wrote to me. So we get a lot of public inquiries at the British Museum. I love doing it. It's a great part of the job because people ask the really sensible questions that you're like, oh, yeah, what, 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 what is, would that be the case? Um, and someone wrote to me and said, oh, I'm an author and I'm writing a, a story about some people in the Iron Age and they go on this really long journey. And um, would they have had shoes? And it's times like that where you just want to think, like, yeah. Yeah, no, they would have had yeah. shoes. Like, at what point can we say that, like, you know, even though we don't find a lot of these things, we know enough to know that they definitely had shoes. Mm. They definitely had shoes. Yeah. Yes. 
We do find shoes. We there do. are shoes. We do there find are. shoes. Um, I mean, even like Utsi the Iceman, uh, much earlier, obviously, but he's got some pretty fantastic yeah. shoes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, the earliest ones I've found from uh, kind of Eurasia are in a cave in Armenia, 5,300 BC, I think, nice. something like that. So, yeah, yeah. So I try and find all of the stuff, but it's it's all over the place, really. So it's hard. <laughs> um, I've had people who've asked me whether people in the Iron Age were our species. Wow. We're really not getting our stories out there. Someone at all. asked me at the end of a gallery talk whether they had the moon in the Iron Age. Had the what? The whether moon. they had the moon, like the big thing in the oh. sky at night. Did they have the moon? Oh, sorry, I'm just trying to not to laugh. <laughs> and it, oh my gosh. It was one of those things where initially I thought, oh, that's hilarious. You don't realize they have the moon. But then I thought, and this was a, a grown man, I just want to say, um, not a child. Um, but then I thought, well, actually, if you've never had an education that links up things like the idea of a kind of like geological frame of time and like the formation of the universe and like history, and you don't know, you have no idea when the moon was formed or how that would work. Well, I guess like, it's not actually obvious, is it? Yeah, exactly. And the, more yeah, I thought really about it, the more I felt mean for having thought it was a really stupid question, but it, it saddens me that someone could have got through their whole life and be asking me, you know, they're, they're with it enough to have come to a gallery talk at the British Museum um, on mm. the Iron Age, but they still have to ask the question to the curator there, did they have the moon? Like, that shouldn't be how that mm. information is getting out. No, I think, yeah, there, there's an issue with a lot of getting our stories out, whether it's in science communication or archaeology or um, history. And um, yeah, we have to, well, obviously we're all doing it. Helen, you did it with your wonderful uh, moustaches of the Iron Age. I love that. We have yes. to have a link to that in the show notes. Oh, and great. Julia, with your... <laughs> with with doing public exhibitions i mean that's it's a fantastic way you get it's thousands of people coming um and i try and do it through this podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> which brings me beautifully to we could go on for um another hour but it's uh, it's now getting late for my guests and i think they will go to need their bed soon <laughs> um so i'm going to say thank you so much um to helen and julia and um if people want to um, know more, can they contact you at all? And uh, like perhaps just on Twitter or something, would you be? Would that be okay to share your details? Absolutely. Lovely. So I will put those on the show notes. Julia, is that all right as well? You on, you are on Twitter. I'm on aren't Twitter. You? I'm at Julia underscore Farley. Lovely. Um, th- so I'll put those. Um, links on if anybody wants to you know pop you a a little tweet to say thank you and I think I'd just finish by saying one of the things that um, Rosemary Sutcliffe said uh, and why she loved writing these stories is that history is people and it does link so back so nicely to a a Mortimer Wheeler quote that we dig up people not pots Mm. Um, and I think that's why I love so much the fiction linked to prehistory is that it it really brings those people to life so thank you thanks very much thank you very much for having us you're very well well thank you so much for agreeing to to talk to me and i think we've had fun tonight so um hopefully the listeners will uh, will enjoy this i'm sure they will um so thanks so much you too 
Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you want more of the Prehistories podcast, uh, in about a month or so, I will be talking to Caroline Wickham-Jones about The Boy with a Bronze Axe, which is set in Scarabray in the Orkney Islands. So um, watch out for that one. Before I go, I'd like to give a shout out to one of my listeners, Robert Stolting, for sending in a recommendation. Um, He has recommended that I read The Legends of Spirit Cave by um, Dennis Cassinelli, I think it is. Um, So I'm going to have to get hold of that and give that a read and hopefully we will address that in a later episode of the podcast if you have any other recommendations of books set in our prehistoric past um, because i know that this uh, podcast has been very europe-centered um please send me them from around the world that would be fantastic i would love to read some books set in other parts of the world other than europe that would be wonderful so please send those in Also, if you have enjoyed this podcast, then please consider supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network, which needs money to keep it going um, and to keep producing fantastic high quality podcasts you can donate a one-off payment um, at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash support or you can become a member on one of our fantastic membership plans on either $5 a month, $10 or $20 and get things like swag, high quality downloads um, and entrance into the members only Slack team where you can talk to the hosts um, and all sorts of other excellent bonuses. So what you need to do to um, become a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network is go to archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash members dash one. Thanks very much for listening, guys, and uh, I'll speak to you in a little bit. This show was produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.